I wonder what sort of a tale we have fallen into. So muses Sam to Frodo as they together make their way towards Mordor in Tolkien's classic, The Lord of the Rings. I wonder what sort of a tale we have fallen into. In that question, Tolkien picks up on something that uh, is a question for all of us as humanity. What, What sort of tale have we found ourselves in? Life doesn't come at us like a set of mathematical equations that we can solve. I wish it did. I studied pure maths at university. I love maths. But life is more like a story than it is like maths. Events unfold one at a time in our lives as each day life confronts us and the narrative grows. If we don't know where our story starts, if we don't know who the main characters are in our story, if we don't have a sense of the plot line and where things are going, it'll be like coming into a movie halfway in. We get thoroughly confused. Things are happening. There's, there's a ring over here. We see these two little guys who are wandering along and they're looking really ragged. They've obviously been in a fight, but we don't know what's happening. Life can be thoroughly confusing if we don't know the story that we're part of. Over the last few weeks at church, we've been plotting out the story of the Bible. We've been seeing how 66 books written by 40 different authors across three different continents over 1,500 years, are united in one single narrative. It's a story that started with God, creating the heavens and the earth, creating everything that is in them, and creating humanity to rule over the world under his authority and rule. But humanity stuffed up. We were tempted by the serpent, the snake, And we rejected God's rule over our lives. We decided we wanted to rule ourselves. But we are not good at that. We fail to rule ourselves. We fail to rule each other. And we fail to rule the world. So we now find ourselves in a world that is broken and cursed. A world full of suffering and pain. But God had a plan, didn't he? And we saw a few weeks back that God made some promises to a guy called Abraham. God promised him that he would make him into a great nation, that that nation would live in an abundant promised land where they'd have everything they needed, where they would live always under God's rule and blessing. And God kept those promises, didn't he? Under the great kings David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel flourished until what we saw two weeks ago. And we met David in his sin, committing adultery with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah, her husband, And then his son Solomon, who there was so much hope in, God had made promises about this son of David. Solomon married 700 women and had his heart turned away from the true God to serve idols. Even these great kings, they too rejected God's rule. As a result, the kingdom of Israel was scattered, sent into exile, away from God's promised land, back under his curse. They were left waiting for this promised son of David, the one who would have a kingdom that would never end, an eternal kingdom, where God's people would always be under God's rule and blessing. We met that king last week, didn't we? Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one for whom and through whom all things were created, the one who came to to reconcile hostile sinners like us back to God. Jesus is the main character of the story. The whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. 
I hope you've realized as we've worked through this storyline of the Bible that it's, it's not just the story of a book that can be held out there at arm's length, analyzed at a distance, perhaps admired. This is the true story. This is the story of the universe. This is the story of your life. It's a story that you have landed in. It's the story that will help you make sense of life as you come at it each day, realizing that you are not the main character of your story, but Jesus is. And this is a story where there is a war going on between Jesus the king and the snake. It's a story in which you have a choice. Whose side will you be on? The choice that you make will determine how your story will end. And that's our task this morning, to look at the ending of God's story, to lift our gaze and see what God has in store for the end, the ultimate fulfillment of those promises that he made to Abraham when God's perfected people will live in God's perfected place under God's perfect rule and blessing. What we'll see is that in the end, God will make all things new. God will make all things new. Let's pray that God would help us to to catch a glimpse of this solid hope for eternity that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, make your name great this morning. Please give us the strength to grasp what is really beyond our current ability to understand. Help us to see what uh, surpasses any comparison we might make. Help us to know what our fleeting human language is ill-fitted to properly describe. Please do give us a glimpse of the glorious future that you have in store for those who, by trusting in Jesus, become united to him. And so please would you fill us with joyful anticipation of reaching those eternal shores that we might endure hardships of this broken world, that we might invite many others to join us in your presence when we come into your perfect new creation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Grab your Bible and open up with me to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to spend our time in these last two chapters of the Bible. Uh, Here we find that John is given a vision of God's perfected kingdom. We don't have enough time to press into all the details of these chapters, so there'll be stuff that you might love from here that we'll miss this morning. I encourage you to keep encouraging one another over morning tea, over coffee and tea in Moa's Nest with the things that you love from this passage, from the hope that God has for the future. We'll pick up on a few key things throughout there. Start with me in Revelation 21 verse 5. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Here in verse 5, we find the summary statement of all that John sees in these two chapters. Notice how God draws attention to this little statement. He has the, the little word at the front there, look, check this out, focus on this. And then he reinforces it by adding another little word at the end of it. These words are faithful and true. God wants to highlight this statement. He wants us to read it and be sure of it. He wants to assure us that no matter what the world looks like at the moment, no matter how much pain and suffering and futility we see now, or or on the other hand, no matter how much comfort we see in the world now, God will make all things new. Three areas of that newness that John sees. First, 
God's going to make a better heavens and earth. See it there in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. Heaven and earth here signify the whole created realm, the universe and all that's in it. The sins of humanity affect nature. You know, in recent years, humanity has, in greed, exploited nature around us for profits. Uh, But the harmful effects of humanity on nature run even deeper than just those obvious things. Back in Genesis 3, verse 17, after humanity had first rejected God, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. When we rejected God's rule, the earth fell under a curse. Up until then, all the plants were happy and friendly. Only after then were there thorns and thistles that scratch and hurt. In Romans 8, verse 20 to 22, we read a description of the creation that has been subjected to frustration, that it's currently in bondage to decay, that it's now groaning in the pains of childbirth. Very tempted to mimic the sounds of childbirth for you this morning, but I'll I'll save your ears that terror. Uh, Childbirth groans are loud and painful, hey? The earth is going through that pain. Earthquakes, famines, floods, droughts, storms, weeds, animals killing one another, animals killing us. These are symptoms of a sick creation, and it groans for healing. The day is coming when God will heal, when he'll renovate, when he'll create a better world, a world where, according to Isaiah 11, uh, the wolf will once more live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, where the child will be able to play near the den of the cobra. Now, I've only been in Auckland for three weeks. They tell me that we don't have any dangerous poisonous snakes here in New Zealand. Uh, To be honest, that makes me a little bit sad. I think I'll miss the perpetual fear of living in Australia and being surrounded by all these animals that just want to kill you. But I trust you get the picture of Isaiah, the child being able to play near the den of what is now a terribly poisonous snake. That's nature and man in hostility. But the day is coming when nature will be restored to perfect peace. Come back to Revelation and and see what else we're told about this better heavens and earth. Look down to Revelation 21 verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, Because God's glory illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. When we think about the heavens, the skies up there, the sun and the moon feature pretty heavily, don't they? They dominate our day and our night. But in God's new world, they'll no longer be needed. That's a pretty big shift in the heavens. They won't be needed because nothing will shroud God's radiance anymore. His glory will be the light of the world will live in the presence of God and his shining radiance will be all that we'll need to see by. Indeed, there's actually not going to be any more night in new creation. That's a big shift. Have a look down in 22 verse 5. Night will no longer exist. People won't need lamplight or sunlight because the Lord God will give them light. Now, while this might represent a physical reality, for John, light and darkness are metaphorical as well. And we can understand the metaphor he's using. Light and darkness go hand in hand. uh, Night and darkness, sorry, go hand in hand for John with sin and with death. 
Darkness is a good place for things to hide. And so when things do hide in darkness, John thinks they must be things that don't want to be seen. Sin and shame. The night time is a scary time. But in God's new universe, there's not going to be any night. God will continually shine upon his people. He'll never withdraw his goodness. There's going to be no opportunity for sin to manifest, for sin to spoil things again. That's a new heavens. While Revelation describes what is a radically new world, hard for us to imagine, it's not so new as to be unrecognisable from what we have now. In Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2, uh, John uses imagery, God shows John imagery that reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Uh, In Eden, there was a river that flowed out of the garden to water the surrounding lands. And what do we have here in the new creation? We have a river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the broad street of the city. Back in Eden, God had planted the tree of life. In the new creation, we have in Revelation 22, verse 2, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Nature will no longer be that thorny and thistly enemy of humanity. It will now give life and healing. The curse that has stood since Genesis 3 will be removed. We live in a beautiful country here in New Zealand, don't we? Other people come and travel here to see the mountains, to see the lakes, to see Milford Sounds. There are some beautiful parts here. I was hiking down at Hanua Falls last week. Lovely to swim underneath the big waterfall there. This is beautiful. But to think that this is the beauty of a world that is tarnished by sin, man, how good is the world going to be when God removes that tarnish? When all sin and danger and death are taken away? God's perfect place, the ultimate promised land, will be exquisite in beauty and transparently safe. God will make all things new. Second thing, God will make better relationships. Better relationships with each other, ultimately a better relationship with God. See, the curse of nature does cause some suffering for us in the world, but the majority of our pain, I think, is uh, caused by others who hurt us, others who sin against us. Back in Genesis 3, as was brought out helpfully in the kids' talk earlier, part of the impact of human sin was discord in the relationship between Adam and Eve. They both now vied for rule over one another. That fight for power that started back then has just continued and escalated. And so now we lie and steal and cheat and hate and get jealous. Others do those things and feel those things towards us as well. Not so in the new creation. Have a look at Revelation 21 verse 4. God promises that death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. I'm going to read those words again. Just let them sit with you for a moment. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. 
God is going to weed out of his world all the people that cause pain. The end of God's story involves a separation. It's described there in Revelation 21 verse 8. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus, when he walked on the earth, described this moment in Matthew 13, verse 41 to 42. Jot it down, you don't have to flick there now. He said this, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They'll throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the love expressed in this, what sounds like a terrible moment of separation and judgment. God wants to create a perfect world. To do that, he has to remove everything that causes sin. All that characterizes the present world, whether it be war, murder, genocide, rape, starvation, sexual abuse, injustice, pornography, political oppression, homelessness, physical abuse, racism, torture, greed, death. For the new earth, God's saying, it's all gone. It's all gone. That means for us as Christians, the the Christian struggle with sin will also be brought to an end. I wonder if you find that one of your great frustrations in life, that you still sin that you still do things that cause others pain and that displease God. We want to be holy, but we fall short of the holiness that we long for. We, we want to love, but we say hurtful things. We want to be pure in thought and impurity bombards our minds. Yes, there's some progress that now the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. But we long to be delivered and set free from this bent towards sinning. Friends, this is what God promises when he makes all things new. We will be made spiritually and morally new. Not just partially as we are now, but wholly. This is what's captured in the image of the city in Revelation 21. Look at 21 verse 2. I also saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. This city is a picture of the church, prepared and made beautiful for her husband, Jesus Christ. When God makes all things new, he makes the church, the people of God, spiritually and morally beautiful for his son. And so down in verse 9 to 11, this picture is filled out. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
And the part of chapter 21 that we didn't read this morning just fills out that picture of the city. There's jewels and gemstones everywhere. Clear pearls, gold, so fine that it's transparent. God has made the bride ready for the sun. And notice in verse 11 how he's done it. By giving us his glory. Having the glory of God. This glory of God will purify us so deeply, so thoroughly, that we will be like a rare jewel. Clear as crystal. Imagine the day when you'll be so good and so right and so pure that you'll be like a translucent jewel that people will look at and see straight through without seeing any impurity at all. Nothing hidden, nothing shameful. And the great thing is this isn't just for you as an individual. Uh, In this we'll be united with all of God's people. The community of saints from all nations down through all ages will be united in complete harmony. We'll join with Moses and David, Elijah and Ezekiel, Peter and Paul, Mary and Martha, all singing together with one voice the praises of our great God. We'll join with countless unnamed martyrs of whom the world was not worthy. We'll be with one another. Look around this morning. Have a look at the people that you're sitting with. We'll spend eternity together. I hope that's a good thing for you to picture that. Uh, If it's not, remember, we'll all be purified. All those things that they've said to annoy you, that will all be gone. We'll be with one another together as we've grown together, as we've wept together. So we will rejoice together. God will make all things new. As much as I love this idea of better relationships with one another, that the greatest joy, the highest joy of the new creation is the better relationship that humanity will share with God himself. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what the whole Bible has been pointing towards, what every generation since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden has been longing for, anticipating, trying to get back to. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In the Garden of Eden, God would walk and have direct conversation with Adam and Eve. That intimacy was the greatest thing that was lost through humanity's sin. Since that time, sinful humanity hasn't been able to get back into God's presence. Uh, From next week, we're going to start studying Exodus at church, and we'll meet Moses, who had a more direct relationship with God than uh, most others in the Bible. He was permitted to see God's back. He couldn't see his face. He could see God's back. Even the direct communication that Moses had with God made his face so bright that other humans around him couldn't bear to look at Moses after Moses had been communing with God. He had to wear a veil over his face. Sinful humanity is now no longer fit to be with God. To enable God and humanity to kind of dwell somewhat in the same place, we'll see in Exodus that God instituted and commissioned a tabernacle, a really fancy tent where God could dwell in the midst of his people, He would dwell in the Holy of Holies, a cube tent within the bigger tent. Into that Holy of Holies, only one person could enter, only once a year. And they had to slaughter a lot of animals, make those sacrifices of blood to atone for their sinfulness, 
so that they could enter in to be with God. The marvel marvel of the incarnation, as we saw last week, is that God does come and dwell amongst humanity. But even in Jesus, as we see God's character fully revealed, full of grace and truth, there was a dimness to God's glory. Suppose as Peter and John went up the mountain with Jesus and saw him transfigured, we get an image there of the brightness and glory and radiance of God shining through. But there's still a dimness there that uh, is described in the New Testament as our ability to only see God through a glass darkly. We cannot see him completely. But when God makes all things new, there's no tabernacle, no temple, no dimming of the radiance of God. The whole city that's described there in Revelation 21 is a cube. It's meant to remind us of that holy of holies. It's meant to make the point that all of creation now is in that immediate presence of God. And so if you have a look at Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I I didn't see a sanctuary in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God's glory illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And again, down in 22, verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. Now we see God through a mirror dimly. Then we shall see God face to face. Then we shall know God, even as we have been fully known. And how little do we currently know of God? He has revealed himself to us. And what we do know, we know truly. But it's like if I was to look down at a a stream of ants walking along the ground. Uh, What are they capable of knowing of me? So little. We are that in comparison to God. Uh, He has given us the ability and he's, he's made himself known to us in some measure. But to know God as we are fully known, as we are fully known by the God who knows every hair of our heads and he knows the date that they fell out, by the God who knows when we sit down and when we rise up, by the God who knit us together in our mother's womb, to know God as we are fully known, happy will they be who continually stand before God and see his glory. And in case you feel that this relationship with God will be muted or distant because there'll be so many people in new creation that maybe others will get it but not you, have a look at Revelation 21 verse 4. Very personal verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. We all have our own tears, don't we? Tears of regret, tears of guilt, tears of broken promises, Tears of loss and separation. Tears over what was taken from us. Tears that we've cried in loneliness and secret anguish. We all have our own stories of how our own sin and others' sin against us has scarred us. What a beautiful image of Revelation 21 verse 4, that the hands that flung stars into space 
hands that were stretched out and pierced as Jesus was hung on a Roman cross. Those same hands will reach in and wipe away the tears from your eyes. With all the intimacy, all the care, all the love that that gesture communicates. These words are trustworthy and true. God will make all things new. The third and final part of the new creation that we'll think on this morning is that God will make us better bodies. See, our current bodies are not fit to experience and enjoy this brand new world that God is making. Depending on how old you are, you're experiencing this to different measures perhaps. Our bodies sag, they wear out, they get tired. Uh, I'm not looking forward to my body wearing out even more. I'm only 28 and I've already noticed that I can't do the sporting things that I used to do. That when I get hurt, it takes a lot longer to start to heal. Our bodies wear out. They're not perfect. They're not right. Some bodies have dramatic deformities. Some have lost limbs. Some have lost senses like sight or hearing. But God will make all things new, fitting us with bodies that will be perfectly suited for all the joys of new creation. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There'll be continuity between you now and you in the new creation. You will still be you and you will still have a body. But in the same measure that a seed planted in the ground differs from the tree that it grows up to be, well, so our resurrection bodies will be different from our current bodies. There'll be a whole transformation of the way that we interact with the world. Our physical senses, our rational capacities, we use those now to experience and appreciate the world around us. So God will enlarge our senses, enlarge our souls, so that we will most fully be able to enjoy Him, enjoy His goodness for all eternity. God will make all things new. That's the end of God's story. It's not some boring, fluffy clouds in the sky with little cherubs strumming golden harps. I don't know if you had the Philadelphia cream cheese ads over here. They did a great disservice to us in Australia. People just think that that's what heaven is. That's not what's described here. What we have in Revelation 21 and 22, God's end to his story is the perfect, endless enjoyment of God by the perfected saints in new resurrected bodies. It's going to be fantastic. God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. The question is, will that be the end to your story? Will you have a share in this perfect new creation? Revelation 21 and 22 make clear who will be there. Have a look at Revelation 21 verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. See it in there? It's the thirsty victor who will experience God's new world. Thirsty. And God's new creation is for those who recognize that they are dependent, who have come to realize that they're not the masters of their own lives, 
but that they need God to satisfy some need within them. It's for those who recognize that their life depends on God. The victor. This is a common theme throughout John's writings, which is helpful because we have lots of data to go off to understand what he meant when he uses these words of victory. Some Christians think that this is a call for us to be conquerors in this life, to overcome sin completely, to, to bring God's kingdom into the present, to trample down sickness, to overcome. That's not John's take on it. As I mentioned back at the start, the, the story that we're involved in has a battle going on between the king and the snake. John, throughout Revelation, shows us the victor in that battle, the Lord Jesus who conquered the snake, the devil, by the blood that he shed on the cross. You can jot down these references in your outline and and look them up later. You see this in Revelation 3, verse 21, chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 17, verse 14. We won't flick to those now, but our victory comes, and John makes it clear, not by defeating the devil ourselves, but by switching sides in that battle by accepting the free gift that Jesus offers to be reconciled to him, to join the winning side. So if you look again at the list in Revelation 21 verse 8 of all those who will be cast out of God's perfect world, what do we got? We got the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars. Well, I fit in that list, don't you? Even just the one on the end there, all liars. That, that puts us all there. Idolaters puts us all in there as well. We've all not treated God as God. We've all put ourselves in that position, moved him from uh, being the first place to the second place or even lower. On our own merit, we all deserve to be cast into that fiery lake of burning sulfur. Hell. Along with the devil whose side we joined when we rejected God to rule our own lives. But here's the passage I want you to flick to about the victory of Jesus. Go back to Revelation 12, verse 10. Open this one up, have a look at it. It's so great. You might even want to underline it in your Bibles. Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. That's the serpent, that's the devil being cast out, being defeated. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. Victory comes by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death has paid the price to redeem us from Satan's grasp back into his winning side. He invites us to unite ourselves with him. That's the image of marriage in Revelation 21. It's an image of uniting ourselves with Jesus. Will you throw your lot in with Jesus? Will you give him your all so that he might give you his all? When we make that trade with Jesus, when we marry him, we don't bring much to the table. We bring all our sin, all our brokenness. He brings victory. He brings life. He brings resurrection. 
Will you unite yourself to Jesus, the thirsty victor, the person who sees their dependence on God and and runs to Jesus to fill it? That's the person who will inherit eternal life in God's perfect new world. That's a world that's worth waiting for. We're still in the battle at the moment. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The scriptures make that clear. People will mock us. Pain will come from other people, from your own sin, from the broken creation. Revelation 21 and 22 don't ignore the reality of the heartache of this world. They don't glibly tell us to cheer up because we're going to heaven. No, they acknowledge our grief. God acknowledges our sickness and our pain and our tears. He doesn't ask us to pretend that all is right in the world. He just asks us to believe and hope in his promise that Jesus will one day make things right. Our comfort won't come in this life, but in God's perfect new world. That's a world that's worth inviting others to come to as well. We talk about evangelism and it can sound scary. It can make us a bit anxious to invite other people to church or to explain in Christianity. Perhaps it will help us to remember that when we share the gospel with someone, we're inviting them to God's perfect new world, that they might have him wipe away their tears and give them new bodies to enjoy intimate relationship with the glorious God forever. This is where Revelation finishes with that invitation to come. Look at Revelation 22 verse 17. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. The spirit and the church, that's us, together call the Lord Jesus to return. But they also call the thirsty person to come. It's an invitation. Reminds me of Jesus' comforting words. Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is a pretty apt description of this perfect new creation that we've seen this morning. Friends, I hope this is where your story will end. Let's keep meeting together. Let's keep encouraging one another to persevere in our faith, to persevere in our trust in Jesus, who is the victor who will bring us safely home to this eternity with God. Let's pray.